We are in Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 18 through 27, a shorter passage tonight, but I am really enjoying this section um, of Mark. This, this, uh, I did debate in college, so I'm kind of a debater by mindset, so Jesus' debates with the leaders uh, and seeing his uh, wise responses, illustrating some of the principles we've learned from Proverbs, really enjoying it. Just a brief reminder, we're up to the test of the Sadducees, Mark 12, 18 through 27. Uh, it's Jesus versus the Sanhedrin, the different leaders in Jerusalem, challenging him, testing him in different ways. So remember, the priests ask, by whose authority? Who gave you the authority to clean out this temple? Well, if someone cleans out one of the messy classrooms in the basement, is someone going to come and say, who's who gave you authority to do this? Uh, I, surely I will not say that uh, if you want to tackle one of those classrooms down there. It's just a mess needs cleaning. Then the Pharisees come and they ask, uh, we looked last week uh, about paying taxes, and now the Sadducees. Let's read this little passage. Mark 12, 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him who say there, that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second uh, took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, also the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? How God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is God's word. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the Gospels, these stories that show us the story of Jesus. That the Son of God took on flesh and lived out a human life in perfect obedience and humility, both to show us God and to show us the godly ideal for life. Let us not be like the Sadducees, who neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God, but let us see both clearly through your word this evening. Amen. Well, this is the first time the Sadducees are mentioned in Mark's Gospel, uh, they're mentioned more frequently in Matthew and the book of Acts. They're also referenced in Josephus, the Jewish historian of the later first century, and several times in the rabbinic letter, literature. But really what we know about the Sadducees is basically based on what we can derive from passages like this in the New Testament and a few similarly short snippets in Josephus and the rabbis. They seem to have supported descendants of the Maccabees, remember uh, uh, the Maccabees revolted against um, uh, Antiochus IV in, in the 2nd century B.C., uh, who 
Uh, well, the, after Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided between his four generals. The general that had rule over the area of Palestine uh, was not too bad at first, but then by the time you get to Antiochus IV, he sacrificed a fat sow on the altar in the temple. And of course, pigs are unclean, and it's this fat sow and lets her entrails and blood all over the altar, desecrating the whole thing. Well, that's the final straw. So the Maccabees rise up, drive him out. They have their own land for about a century uh, and have free rule until Rome comes in for about a century. So the Maccabeans themselves were um, good guys, and yet uh, what they tried by force simply couldn't accomplish what actually needed to be done that Jesus does uh, by self-giving. Uh, that's neither here nor there, but the point is that the Sadducees supported the descendants of the Maccabees continuing to rule. And then on the other end, they seem to have disappeared after the Jewish revolt in AD 70 when the Jews are sent out of the land. Uh, the Pharisees become the rabbis more or less. The Sadducees just seem to cease to exist. Oh. Well, yeah, yeah, so they were kind of the priestly aristocracy, so they tend to be in Jerusalem. The Pharisees are all over the place teaching in synagogues. The Sadducees, they're in Jerusalem. They seem to be fairly well off. Uh, yeah, and the status quo suits them fairly well in the current situation here. Um, there's no surviving Sadducee writings that we can point to to say here's what they thought about themselves. But what we can tell, uh, and Mark gives us a few clues here, um, they only accepted the Pentateuch as Scripture, so uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, that was Scripture, uh, and the other stuff was deuterocanonical from their point of view. Uh, they didn't believe the resurrection. Mark tells us that right here. They denied the resurrection, uh, and they seem to have really emphasized free will over against divine sovereignty, so I don't know if that makes us particularly sort of skeptical of them uh, as Reformed folk. Uh, that's a joke, I guess, but uh, that's kind of the... Uh, that's kind of what we can tell about where they're at. Okay, Mark opens. He fills us in. Again, they just seem to come out of nowhere. Here's the Sadducees showing up to ask a question. And he fills us in. They don't believe in the resurrection. Again, they come to Jesus with a carefully constructed question. Does anyone remember from last week or, or from their familiarity with Mark's gospel, what was the Pharisees' strategy in their question? To trip him up, yes, yes indeed. And how so? A no-win answer, yeah. Uh, and what did you say, Austin, sorry? Yeah, so either upset the crowds or upset the, the Roman uh, uh, overlords, one way or the other. So he's on the horns of a dilemma. What's the Sadducee strategy? In technical terms, I think we would call this a reductio ad absurdum, a, a reducing a belief to the absurd consequences, the absurdity of the resurrection, at least insofar as they believe. Okay, so they set up this scenario. It starts with leveret marriage, uh, which is taught in Genesis 38, uh, sort of in a story, Deuteronomy 25, uh, 5 to 6. In fact, I'll just flip over there real quick uh, just to show that they really are grounding this. In Scripture, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. Uh, what are the concerns there? Maybe you, maybe you heard as I read that. 
Seems to be two, two main concerns. Yeah, Lulu? Oh, if there's no brother to bury to. Yeah, now you're getting into the weeds here. I, a kinsman redeemer like Boaz, I guess, would be the, the appropriate person to marry, marry the widow. Yeah, Dan. Yeah, carrying on the brother's name. And of course, uh, each clan was given a specific piece of land in Israel. And so if she goes and marries someone from another clan, then that land ends up going outside. And so, so it's sort of focusing on that. Yeah, Jan. That's what I was Oh, okay. Yeah, Eva. Oh, if the brother already has a wife, that causes trouble. You're right. Yeah. Uh, it, sets, it sets up a struggle there. Yeah, Chris? To care for the woman. Yeah, to care for the woman. Yeah, absolutely. And then it, it, it says so that she doesn't marry a stranger. So there seems to be maybe not marrying a Gentile or outside the family. So uh, it is very strange to us as modern people. Yeah, Austin? I'm actually kind of curious, continuing on Eva's, Eva's question, would, would they have two wives then? Like polygamy was... Not out of the question in the Old Testament, I see. If the man does not wish, this is continuing, does not wish to take his brother's wife, and his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders, my husband's brother refuses to take me, won't do the duty, the elders of the city shall come to him, speak to him, and say, uh, if you persist saying I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull off his sandal and spit in his face, and she shall say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him whose sandal got pulled off. Okay, and then that's the end. But it seems like then she's more or less free to, um, free to marry as she sees fit. Um, but could, would the, if, if the brother was married already, yep. would he be still expected to take his, his brother's wife as his wife? So what I read there and then the story in Genesis when um, uh, Tamar marries the brother and then won't be given to the other brother, that's really what we have on leveret marriage in the Old Testament. So um, my suspicion or hunch, how it would play out in my mind is, is then it would maybe go to a single brother. And if there's not a single brother, then potentially it would be a, some sort of polygamous situation. Um, that, that's my guess. Maybe Ben has a good answer here. Can we look at the book of Ruth and say that this is an actual example lived out of the situation? Obviously, there's no brother. Yeah. But it's decided in the gate of the one guy. Yeah. Says, I can't do it because I don't want to split up my estate. And so Boaz takes the responsibility. Yeah, he doesn't get spit in his face, though. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think the underlying principle that we're getting at here is, it, although it seems strange to us, it's designed as a social safety net protect widows. And I think that underlying principle certainly we're seeing in the book of Ruth um, of a kinsman redeemer redeeming a widow. Um, yeah, I guess that's all the answers I have on lever of marriage. I'll read a lot on it for next weekend. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Jan, yeah. Well, and Hannah, Hannah's husband had two wives. Hannah's husband has two wives. Um, uh, yeah, and a, a number of the the polygamous marriage, okay, so a few things then to say about polygamy. <laughs> First, it's never explicitly condemned in the Old Testament. Second, it never works out well in the Old Testament. And so if you read the narratives, and especially, it's kind of like we talked about in Proverbs, uh, moving beyond just black and white. It doesn't black and white say don't marry more than one woman. And yet in wisdom, if you read the stories, you know the stories of the ancestors, 
uh, Rachel and Leah are nasty to each other, Sarah and Hagar <laughs> torment each other. Uh, just every example we have is messed up family dynamics. Um, so those are the two principles. It's not explicitly condemned, and yet it's clearly depicted as an unwise thing to do. Um, within that, there seems to be two primary situations that lead to polygamy. Um, one is political situations. So David has a number of wives. Solomon, of course, uh, it gets ridiculous the number of wives he has, but, but it's a way of making alliances with nearby kingdoms. Uh, the other thing is it seems to function as an almost sort of fertility treatment. So you have Baron Hannah, who seems to be more loved, and then you have Penina, who can bear children, and yet it's not where um, Elkanah's affection seemed to be in the beginning of, of, of the book of Samuel. And that's similar situation seems to be happening in a number of times. So it, it, that seems to be the other function is as a sort of um, uh, ancient fertility treatment. I guess that's kind of a crass way of putting it, but uh, that seems, those seem to be the two situations. Um, and sorry, now I've gone on a tangent. I can't remember the initial question, Jan. What, what's that? I made you do it. Yeah, but what was the original question? Did I answer it? Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay, good, okay, good. <laughs> okay, well now that's, uh, We've got it set up. Okay, so that's the more or less the situation. Notice they're rooting it in the law of Moses, the Pentateuch that they take as scripture. And they're saying, if this is the scripture, and if we believe in the resurrection, and we put these two together, it leads to clearly absurd conclusions. Therefore, we know the scripture's too, true, so the resurrection must not be true. That's more or less the argument okay. that they're moving forward here. Uh, and of course, this is a particularly absurd scenario. Um, seven tends to be this number of like sort of a full number. Uh, 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 David has seven brothers. They've gone through all the brothers by the time they've gotten to seven and like, oh yeah, there's one other leftover, but seven's enough. What do you need the leftover for? I mean, that's kind of the, the mindset. So she's been married to seven brothers, a, a, an absurdly large amount. None have kids. And so there's no possible basis for saying, well, the third brother who she had a son with, that's the one that she's married to. Nothing like that. Questions grounded in scripture, and they think it's a knockdown argument to expose superstitious beliefs in the afterlife. How does Jesus respond? He doesn't argue on technical grounds, nor does he follow through their logic. What does he say are the two reasons that the Sadducees are wrong? They don't know the scripture. Oh, he is the God of the living. That's true. But at the beginning, he says there's two reasons that you're wrong. Uh, sorry. In verse 24. No, yeah. marrying, no marrying in heaven. Well, he does say that as well. But even before that, just when he's setting up, he's just saying right from the start, you're wrong. And here's the two reasons. Don't know the power of God. That's right. Yeah, Jack and, and Lulu. Yeah. Um, so uh, this, is not this the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Interesting, uh, just in passing. They haven't actually advanced a statement. They've, met, they've asked a question. How can a question be wrong? Yeah, it's based on a, a set of assumptions that are wrong. Saying so you're asking this question because you're approaching it from a wrong-headed framework that leads to these confused things. What's that wrong-headed framework? You don't really know the scriptures well enough, and you don't know the power of God. Uh, it's hard. Uh, Jesus... I mean, certainly he calls the, uh, he knows the Pharisees are being hypocritical, and so he's saying, why are you putting me to the test? But this, uh, he opens and closes by saying, you're wrong, uh, you're quite wrong, and then he's saying, you don't know either the power of God or the scripture. I mean, uh, let it never be said of us that we don't know the scriptures or the power of God. I'll just note in passing, there is a possible solution to this scenario that 
Uh, no one even considers, uh, as a, just a logical puzzle, uh, uh, anyone, <laughs> Dan's saying no. <laughs> I, a, a polyandry, I guess, would be the solution that maybe she just has seven husbands in heaven and that's the solution to the problem. But it's interesting, no one, neither Sadducees or, you know, or the crowd, no one involved here seems to think that that's a live option. Um, I guess it's a reflection of the largely patriarchal uh, society. What's his answer? Uh, and again, here's what's really fascinating me uh, or, or getting me excited as I'm reading this section and preparing for the section is uh, Jesus is challenged on his authority and all three of his answers, uh, uh, last week, this week, next week, are these authoritative answers where he answers the question and that's enough, but then he goes beyond it, above and beyond it, where, uh, remember last week, the Pharisees marveled at him. And so he goes like above and beyond it and blows him out of the water. So the initial answer to the question is when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Okay, that's a sufficient answer. But then he goes beyond that. Let's start with just the, the, the answer there, the immediate answer. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels. He's not saying that when we die, we become angels, but he's saying in respect of marriage, at that point, we are similar to angels. I, I think, oh, did someone say something? No, okay. I think here the, the, the helpful commentary on this is what Paul provides in 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm just going to read, I mean, the whole chapter is good on this, but 15, I'm going to read verses 42 through 49. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural man, uh, body, but it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, excuse me, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul's picture here is if you plant an acorn, what comes up? A bigger acorn? What comes up when you plant an acorn? It's not a trick question. Yeah, Abram? A tree. Yeah, what kind of tree? Acorn tree. No. <laughs> an oak tree, is that what you said? Yes, that's what she said. Okay, good, because that's the right answer. Yeah. <laughs> Plant an acorn, an oak tree comes up. If you did a DNA analysis on an acorn, what kind of DNA would you get? Acorn. And if you did it on an oak tree, what kind of DNA would you get? It's the same DNA, right? It's, it's still there. There's continuity. It's the same. Not only is it the same DNA, but it's the same plant. The, the particularity of that tree's DNA is the same or whatever. Do trees have DNA? I don't know. Whatever they have in their cells. That Okay, Nate's saying they do. Thank you. <laughs> I assume they did, but I was reading the other day that their cells have walls instead of membranes, plants, so it's a little bit, anyways, but uh, neither here nor there. You don't uh, pay me to study biology, so that's all right if I get that wrong. But the, that's the picture that Paul gives us. The difference between an acorn and an oak tree is the difference between our bodies that we're in now, which are buried in the ground, and come up as spiritual bodies. It's still the same DNA, as it were. It's still us, 
and yet it blossoms, it blooms, it grows into what it's meant to be, a spiritual body. That's big news. Yeah. It is big news. Yeah. And this is what Jesus is saying. You don't know the power of God. You're limited in your thinking. All you can think of, all you can think of is this life, but just more days added to it. And he's saying, you don't understand the power of God. It's beyond that. It's above that. What about marriage then? Uh, those of us in a happy marriage, I think in particular... Oh, actually, let's pause for a second. So the, the goal is not to become angels in a sense that we're disembodied spirits. We're going to be resurrected bodies. Our bodies will be somehow reconstituted, um, rebuilt, remade. Maybe that's the right way to think about it because, of course, our bodies go in the ground and then those molecules get into other bodies. And so it's you know, not the exact same molecules but the same us, the same form. Uh, and yet when we think about Jesus' resurrection appearances, what do we see? It's the same body. It's the same body? It's, how do you know it's the same body? He's got scars. He's got wounds still that he had from what happened in life. Uh, some of you have seen my big uh, shark bite scar on my leg. It's, it's not from an actual shark. But, I, you know, I have a big scar on my leg. Presumably in the resurrection, somehow I'll have a scar on my leg. And yet uh, he eats fish, I think I heard Albert say. Uh, and so he seems physical in that respect. And yet he sort of seems to appear and disappear the disciples on the road to Emmaus don't recognize him, and then they do recognize him. Uh, he seems to pass through this locked door. Presumably not, uh, Luke's not saying he climbed through the window. Presumably he's saying in some sort of a supernatural manner, uh, uh, he, he appears. And so there's, there's both the physicality, the continuity, and yet it's clear that he is something more. Well, what of marriage then? Remember what Paul tells us in Ephesians, that marriage is a picture of the union of Christ with the church. And so, although we will not have marriage in heaven, is what Jesus is teaching here, we will have the thing itself that marriage is a picture of. And as we talked about this morning, when we are in Christ, we are also bound together with our fellow believers. And so the goal of a Christian marriage is that the believing spouses are united to Christ in the resurrection, and so are also united to each other even more profoundly by being in Christ. And so I don't think Jesus is saying there's not going to be any particularity. Uh, you won't remember the people you were married to when you're in heaven. I don't think that's what he's saying. But he's saying the thing itself will have come that fulfills what marriage is meant to be a picture of. Okay, so that's the answer. Okay, He's saying you're limiting God's power. God's power is far beyond this. Uh, it's the acorn to the oak tree. That's the comparison you need to be making here. But then he goes beyond that. He doesn't stop there. And uh, if that's, they limited God's power here, he shows they don't really understand scripture. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Uh, if you were going to prove the resurrection from the Old Testament to someone who believed in scripture, what passage would you go to? What's that, Chris? I'd try this one. You'd try this one? You had a good teacher show you that. Yeah. Elijah going, getting taken up into heaven or Enoch. Yeah, Elijah or Enoch going to heaven. I'd maybe go to Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones getting uh, sinew and, and flesh and, and skin put back on it. Or Daniel talks about resurrection in fairly clear terms towards the end of the book of Daniel. Is the revelation talk about? Abraham promises to Abraham. 
Yeah, the promises to Abraham from Genesis. Yeah. Why do you think Jesus goes to this passage, maybe instead of Ezekiel or Daniel or some of those more? From, yeah, I think he's rooting it in the Pentateuch. So he's saying, I'll take, I'll, even on the grounds that you want to argue, I'll show you you're not reading the scripture well. And of course, at the burning bush, this is this profound revelation. What does God tell him his name is there? I am. I am. Uh, I am who I am. I'm the ground of being, of life itself. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob dead or living? Yes, that's a good answer. I would say they're dead. They are currently dead, uh, not resurrected. And, I, and so I think the point here is not somehow they're alive in heaven so much as that God is the God of the living and he's committed to bringing again to life those who are currently dead. Uh, their soul being separated from the body is not the final hope. It's like... Um, uh, you know, if you watch sci-fi, they put people, you know, freeze people in a cryogenic thing. That, I mean, that's sort of what's going on, is the soul is being preserved by God's power, separated from the body where it's meant to be. Um, so, yes, they are still there, uh, and yet, in a sense, they are dead. I think what Jesus is saying here, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, is that it's a, God's commitment to resurrect, to redeem his people, his commitment to be the God of the living, to restore life. And this commitment of God to be the God of the living is central to Jesus' own self-conception and mission. Remember, three times I'm going to die. 8.31, after three days I will rise, or he will rise again. 9.31, after three days he will rise. 10.34, after three days he will rise. He die as the son of the death. After three days the Son of Man will rise again. Seeing God tied up with Jesus' own mission. That's fulfilled. He's the other way around. If there's resurrection, Jesus' mission is he can't just take. They just have a sort of abstract argument about what happens when we die. This is the whole humanity. You be the God of the living. will is again the Son of Man die. Quite one. Uh, a more close relationship. Your way of force here. It's a spirit animal. What about Alive? Yeah. Yeah. Thing with um, uh, Samuel appearing to Saul as a ghost of some sort. I don't have it all sorted out. <laughs> They're not alive in the flesh in the sense of beating hearts, I don't think. But maybe they're there in their body. I don't think they're alive in the flesh, but I don't have a... Yeah, good, good question, Joel. Yeah, Jan. Yeah, I think about there's that scripture in Revelations that um, there's those that have been beheaded and they're underneath the altar and they say, how long, O Lord, yeah. so you will avenge our death. And he said, just a little while longer. And then he gives them a robe to wear. Yeah. They've got to put it on something. So yeah, that's true. I don't know, it's just curious. That's true. Okay, you guys are forcing me to rethink this. Maybe I'm thinking resurrected already, or, or at least embodied in heaven, yeah. as they wait to come yeah, back Yeah, it's here. not the same body that will have the resurrected. Yeah, that's a good question. Although maybe Revelation's well, just a yeah, no yeah, John. Isn't that part of his argument, though, with the Sadducees? Because they didn't believe in the afterlife. Yes. Yeah. You know, they were kind of the liberals at the time. And he's saying that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are living. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So either he's I, saying. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. You said you're not living in the body. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Are living. I yep. Mean, when, we, when we have eternal life in Christ, we never die. Yep. We, yeah. we may our body may die. Yep. But our spirit never dies. And yeah. Eventually, our spirits will come back to our bodies in the resurrection. 
But in the meantime, we are alive with Christ in heaven. Yeah, yes, yes. But bo- bo- I think both are true. Yeah. And so if we think, yeah. if we think in terms of in Sunday school class, we've been going through the Apostles' Creed. He died and was buried and was in the grave for a day. When he's in the grave for a day, is he dead or is he alive? Well, I mean, in a sense, his spirit is still in existence. He's still in that sense alive. And yet he really is dead in the grave and then is risen again. So there is a sense in which we are really dead when we die. And yet there's a sense in which we're still alive around the throne praising with Christ. Uh, and so I think both senses are held, both are true. But I do think part of his argument with Sadducees is to say that there, yeah. is, there is a life after death. Which oh, I think. Were, were, did not believe in. I think that's yeah. part of his argument. Yeah. 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 That, hey, you know, even though you're kind of telling me about the wife, yeah. or whether who's going to have what husband, no, that's important. That's not the big issue. There is still life after death. Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, I think the, the, in the background is like, if you asked a, a Gentile at this time what they thought about the afterlife, they would say there is an afterlife. Your shade goes to Hades and wanders around as long as people remember you, and then once you're forgotten, you sort of fade into a mist. So there's this afterlife. But if you ask them, do you believe in the resurrection, they would say, no, I don't even know what that means, uh, the, the, the rising again. Um, the, that body coming, the body being uh, resurrected in the flesh, that's the idea that doesn't seem to have been believed in by the Sadducees or the, or the Gentiles of this time. But if you were to ask a, uh, what do you call it, Jews, secular Jew yeah. today, yeah. is there an afterlife? They would say no. When we die, we're done. And most, I would say most uh, modern non-Christian people that once you die, we're done. You know, I, I don't, yeah, I mean, that's just hard to know because you have a million views. But I think, I think most people would say there is some sort of an afterlife, that your spirit goes and joins the universal spirit or something like that. Um, N.T. Wright had an interesting comment in his commentary on this passage on the, in Mark for Everyone. He talks about when Princess Diana died, he was working at a cathedral. I don't remember where, but he's, you know, he's a minister, so he's working at a cathedral in England. And they put these books that people could write memorial messages to Princess Diana or about Princess Diana in the cathedrals. And so he said, okay, this book was out for a week. People came by and wrote messages. And I paged through it, and he's saying, these are people who came into a church and wrote messages. And he's saying, you know, some people said, well, Princess Diana's a new star now that's out there. And some people said, well, her spirit's joined to the world spirit. And now she's been, you know, the circle of life, or whatever, and just marveling at how many wrong <laughs> views there are, even amongst, uh, you know, secular or vaguely Christian or nominally Christian people. Um, so I think it, it's a pretty hardened person who says there's absolutely nothing that's preserved, even, yeah, yeah. Uh, but people do say that. Yeah. So, yeah, Austin. You're back, to the, you're back to the polygamy again. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is the sense that the Sadducees at the end are like, chastised and that they kind of accept Jesus' argument? Because if I put myself in the Sadducees' shoes, I, it just kind of seems like, wait, what did... Like, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like... Yeah. Yeah. What is that comment? Like, God is the God of the living and... Not the, not the dead. Yeah. Like, what, what does that have anything to... Yeah. No. <laughs> doesn't seem like a valid argument. 
Well, if he's the God of the living and he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must have a life beyond the life in the past. So he kind of makes the same argument that the Sadducees do, where he's saying, if you believe this scripture is true, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and if you take this premise and you put them together, the resurrection necessarily follows. Um, And I don't think anyone wants to say he's the God of the dead or something like that. So... uh, But then the other part uh, of your question is, how do the Sadducees respond? Well, we'll see next week that the scribe comes up and actually overhears his response and likes his response so much that then the scribe asks his question about the greatest commandment. So uh, the discussion between Jesus and the Sadducees is actually interrupted there with the next question that comes up. Yeah? One in five Americans believe in the afterlife. (laughs) How many Americans? One in five. Americans believe in the afterlife? That doesn't sound right. More than one in five Americans is a Christian. More than one in five Christian Americans is a Christian, so hopefully they believe in an afterlife. Yeah, uh, Jim? Oh, I don't know. Another thing I was just thinking about as we were talking, that Jesus says to the thief on the cross that professes faith in him, he says, this day you'll be with me in paradise, so you'll be with me. Yeah. With me? With me. Yeah, with me. To be clear, I'm not denying that we're with Jesus oh, no, or that we're no. conscious or worship or anything like that. I'm uh, just saying that the ultimate goal is to be the spirit reunited with the body in a resurrection like Jesus' right. own resurrection. Yeah. Uh, well, let's turn around to prayer. Uh, this is great discussion, guys. Uh, that's good to have some lively... We'll come back to it. It, it, it returns to this... This theme comes up again in this book, so we'll come back to it.